Americans. This is the Urbane Cowboys podcast with Josiah Neely of R Street Institute and Doug McCullough of Lone Star Policy Institute. Good day. Howdy, y'all. Welcome to the Urbane Cowboys podcast. I'm Josiah Neely with the R Street Institute. And I'm Doug McCullough with the Lone Star Policy Institute. Today we're joined by Adam Millsap of the Stand Together Foundation and Charles Koch Institute, as well as a columnist from Forbes. Uh, Adam, thank you for joining us today. Uh, the reason I wanted to have you on the program is that we both were just recently at the Economic Freedom of North America conference in Dallas, Texas, and uh, reminded me that we've been wanting to have you on the program. So tell us a little bit about your work at Stand Together and the Charles Koch uh, Institute. And then uh, we'll talk a little bit about your book as well as the Economic Freedom of North America conference that we both attended. Yeah, so I'm a senior fellow for economic opportunity issues at Stand Together and the Charles Koch Institute. So Stand Together is just part of the Charles Koch's philanthropic community. Why don't you tell us a little bit about your background? Sure, absolutely. So uh, I'm from Ohio originally, outside of Dayton, Ohio. Um, I went to graduate school at Clemson University, did my PhD in economics there. Uh, right out of grad school, I worked I worked at the Mercatus Center as a, a, a research fellow doing state and local policy work. Um, then I went down to Florida State and was the assistant director of a center there in the economics department. Um, and then for the last two years, since June of 2019, I've been at Stand Together in the Charles Koch Institute um, as a senior fellow, again, working on issues related to the economy. Okay, so that's kind of a nutshell. So you focus a lot on economic opportunity. And so naturally, you wrote a book about Dayton, Ohio. Uh, Tell us about economic opportunity in Dayton, Ohio, and your book, Dayton, The Rise and Decline of an Industrial City. Yeah. So the book, when I, so growing up in Dayton, Ohio, I'd seen the decline of of a Midwestern city up close and personal. Um, I lived in Dayton until my family was in the uh, second grade. So I was in the second grade and then we moved out to the suburbs. So a classic story of people living in a city and then, you know, the flight out to the suburbs. Um, So that was something that very much interested in me when I got to grad school was why do some cities grow and why do some cities shrink? And so I did, that was part of my, what my uh, dissertation was about and what I spent a lot of time reading about. And so I thought I had a pretty good handle on what caused, what causes some cities to decline and some to shrink, at least from like a, you know, a 10,000 foot perspective. And so I, I used those lessons and then applied them to Dayton. So I used Dayton as like the archetype city um, that I wrote about in order to instill the kind of lessons of why some cities have done well since the 1950s, 1960s, and while others have found themselves in a, in a place that, such as Dayton or Buffalo or Cleveland, you know, there's a ton of cities that kind of had a similar story under similar circumstances. Okay, so what are what are the causes? Yeah, so the four big ones, um, kind of the ones you hear about all the time. So you got you got white flight. So white uh, middle class people leaving the suburbs to go out to, I believe, in the city to go out to the suburbs. Variety of reasons. Um, you know, people talk about the racial reasons. Maybe some of it was some underlying racism. Um, didn't necessarily want to be around in blacks that were migrating up from the south. I think there's probably some of that for sure. But I think it was also a class issue. You had middle class whites in the cities who didn't want um, to be living near so not only the lower income blacks that were coming up from the South, but also lower income whites from Appalachia, places like West Virginia, Tennessee. Uh, my family actually migrated up to Dayton from Tennessee, my grandfather on my dad's side. Um, oh, so you were one of the people the, uh, they were trying to get away from. Yeah, exactly. Initially, you're one of the people trying to get away from. Well, they actually migrated up and then they went right out to the burbs, though. Uh, so they couldn't get away. You're from trying it. to get away from yourself. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We're trying to get away from the people we used to live next to in Tennessee. Right, right. right. Um, so, 
it's one of those kind of things, I guess. Um, so that's the one. You got the white flight. Um, you got the highways, the highways that made it easier to to get in and out of the city. So you could now live out in the suburbs and it was much easier to commute into the city, you know, during the 60s and 70s. So you see a big explosion in suburban growth along highway routes. Um, then you also have just a decline of manufacturing. So manufacturing declined. Um, a lot of manufacturing plants were located in the cities. Those plants then moved out. Some moved out to the suburbs where land was cheaper. You got rid of the vertical manufacturing and did more of the horizontal. Factories started to spread out and get larger and do more of the horizontal manufacturing. So you went out to where land was cheaper. Um, you also had the rise of Japan. And so the auto uh, companies you know, moved um, facilities, some overseas to places like Mexico, but also to the south where you had right to work laws and a little more friendly business environments and stuff like that. So Dayton was a big GM town. I actually worked in the uh, GM factory, the Moraine truck and bus plant one summer while I was in college, putting together SUVs. Uh, that plant's no longer there. It's still there, but it's no longer owned or operated by GM. Now it makes um, windshields for, for cars and other glass products for cars. So you had the decline in manufacturing, the white flight, the highways, and then just the decline of cities that did well had a really strong knowledge economy. So they tend to be cities that had major universities in them where you could churn out uh, high skill workers. You get those knowledge spillovers, more innovation, um, a little smoother transition to the tech and the service sector economy. Like I said, Dayton, Cleveland, Buffalo, you know, they're old industrial cities with a lower educated workforce. And so when that transition was occurring in the 80s and 90s, they, they weren't able to really take part in it. So those are kind of the four big, big factors that I discuss in the book. You referenced Japan, but uh, the last administration uh, focused a lot of their ire towards China. Uh, and even think tankers today, we hear a lot of uh, certain think tankers that uh, write a lot about China shock as a source of... Uh, uh, a loss of jobs in the United States. Do you think that China is a cause of uh, the decline of our Midwestern industrial cities? Um, not really, because at least I don't think so for, for the late uh, 20th century stuff, because the rise of China really happened in the late 90s, early 2000s, after they joined the WTO. By then, cities like Dayton and Cleveland and Buffalo and Pittsburgh were already, were already on their way down. Scranton, Pennsylvania, they were already on their way down um, before China really became a a factor. Maybe you can partly blame Japan if you want to blame anybody um, for when, when their rise of the Japanese automakers in the late 70s and early 80s. But the cities were already well under underway with decline before China really became a factor. Yeah. Blaming Japan is okay. Japan is Not okay. quite as good as China, but okay. So what, um, I mean, uh, what hope is there? Is there any hope for renewal? Uh, what, how do you respond to this? Like, what, what should the policy be? to deal with this if we want to come back. Yeah. So prior to the pandemic, I thought, you know, some cities were actually doing pretty well. There was a lot of research showing that young people were moving back into cities, back into core neighborhoods downtown that were more walkable and pedestrian friendly. They could be around amenities. Um, a lot of this was you know, tied to the different reasons, but some of it was delayed family formation. So um, if you're young and single, it's good to be in a city where you can walk to bars and hang out with friends and meet new people. Living on the suburbs is less appealing. Um, that's starting to shift a little bit with the demographics. I think millennials really didn't. Uh, it was not that they were never going to get married or never have kids. They were just kind of putting it on delay. And I think we're seeing some of that shift a little bit. But still, there was some hope for downtowns. Um, how can Sim cities come back? I mean, Dayton's downtown, for, to be fair, Dayton's downtown is much better than it was when I was a kid. When I was in high school and even when I was in college and would come back home to see my parents, no one ever went into downtown Dayton to do anything. 
Um, now you go back and there's a ton of breweries, um, new restaurants and stuff like that. So it's doing well as like a consumer city. Um, but it's, I think those kind of cities can stabilize. I think the population hemorrhaging can, can stop. You've seen Dayton's population kind of stabilize, but I don't think it'll ever be what it was. Um, it was like 260,000 people at its peak and now it's like 140. And I would be surprised if it ever gets back up to 260,000 people. So, yeah. So uh, I think this is a, may, might be a good segue. It, it turns out that you and I were both at a conference last week uh, in Dallas for the Economic Freedom of North America. Uh, it's a network uh, put on by Fraser Institute, which is primarily based in Canada, but also here in the United States. Um, and as we're talking about uh, economic renewal and in Midwestern cities and so forth, uh, I think that that may uh, there may be sort of a natural uh, segue to talk about uh, the importance of economic freedom. So tell us a little bit about um, EFNA, uh, the Economic Freedom of North America, and uh, and how important economic freedom is to the renewal of Midwestern cities. Yeah, sure. So EFNA, the Economic Freedom of North America Index, the Fraser Institute um, co-publishes this, where they publish it with some uh, faculty members at Southern Methodist University. And it basically is, mimics kind of the Economic Freedom of the World Index that Fraser initially started publishing and looks at how free the 50 states are in the U.S., but also the Canadian provinces and the Mexican states as well. Um, and it ranks them on measures like labor policy, um, tax policy, um, you know, kind of, kind of at, the inst- at the institutional level. So what are the good institutions um, that can help foster economic growth? So, I mean, I think I think there's and there's a ton of research out there linking this measure, this economic freedom in North America, linking it to positive outcomes, whether that's GDP or health outcomes, um, you know, higher levels of education, all kinds of good things when there's higher levels of economic freedom. Um, as far as like, you know, when you think about the Midwest, what can the Midwest do? I mean, I think states like Ohio, they have to be pretty drastic. Um, something else I talk about in my book, right, is the appeal of geography and, and natural amenities and stuff like that. So a lot of times people are moving out of the Midwest, out of the Northeast, um, into places in the Sun Belt. Think of Florida and Georgia and the Carolinas are really exploding. Um, I thought it was amazing when I was, when I was in grad school in Clemson, how many people I'd run into who knew about Miami University, my undergrad, and knew about Dayton, because there are a lot of them used to live in Ohio, and then they left to go down to the South. So I think states like Ohio, Michigan, Indiana, that are kind of losing population, or at least not growing as quickly as some of these Southern states, they need to be pretty drastic and say, what can we do differently? How can we set ourselves apart? What can our competitive advantage be? And economic freedom is one of the things you control. You know, Ohio can't put up mountains. It can't, you know, add new beaches. So it has to create a business environment that attracts entrepreneurs and attracts businesses. So I think it's going to be actually really important for for places like Ohio and and, and Michigan and other Midwestern states in order to compete with the Southern states that just have better natural amenities and can, uh, you know, outdo them on so many other dimensions. So, yeah, there's a recent recent study showing that a ton of uh, business headquarters are leaving California and and moving to other states around the country. I think it's up to like 200. I think in the article I say 265, but I think there's an updated version of the study that has like 273 headquarters that have left California over the last three years. And, you know, California, again, is one of those places that it should be doing really well. It should be succeeding. And for a long time, it did. I mean, you think about the geography. Uh, you think about the climate. I mean, it's got a very temperate climate, you know, nice winter, especially Southern California, nice, mild winters. You know, the summers aren't too hot. 
you got the beaches, you got the mountains. California's got a lot of things going for it, except for public policy. Um, its policies are very anti-business, uh, very anti-worker, very anti-entrepreneur. And at some point, the policies get so bad, they can no longer compensate for the geographic advantages that California has. And so you're seeing that. And so these businesses, when they leave California, they're not just going to like Texas, which is an obvious one, or, or, or a place like Florida. They're going to Indiana, Minnesota, you know, Oregon, Arizona, Nevada. They're going all over the country because pretty much any business climate outside of like, you know, New York and New Jersey is better than California's. So I think until California um, starts really taking a look at itself, look in the mirror and say, what can we do to make us make our areas, make our policies more pleasant for, for entrepreneurs, and innovators, right? Lower taxes, um, free up workers. I mean, they're attacking the independent sector, the independent workers with the gig economy, with the Uber stuff that they tried to do. So they're just very hostile. There's a lot of uncertainty. The housing regulations are terrible, super expensive. So no one can afford to live there. It makes it hard to attract workers. Their prices are really high. Energy costs are high. I mean, California has a host of things that it needs to start looking at in order to change. So, but what's the, you know, what's the, the downside to California? You know, in, in, in Texas, we like to sort of gloat that, uh, you know, about companies coming here, that we're attracting the businesses, uh, and except when we have people like Ted Cruz, who, you know, adopts a, a Texas drawl to say, don't California, my Texas and all this. But what's really the problem for California? I mean, isn't this sort of reaching an equilibrium where it's crowded and, they, you know, it's only limited resources? Is there really a problem with a problem for California if if they're shedding residents. So this sounds like the Curly hypothesis. I don't know if you've heard of that, Josiah. Have you heard of that from Boston? Uh, I'm not. I'm not familiar with this. What? what is that okay. Like? So so Mayor Curly in Boston, Ed Glazer wrote a paper about this at Economist at Harvard. Um, I can't remember exactly when he was the mayor in the 50s or 60s, something like that. Maybe into the 70s. Uh, but he was the mayor of the Boston, and the Curly hypothesis is that uh, he was actually. He actually liked it when people left Boston because he figured that the people who were leaving were the people who most who didn't like his policies the most. And so it would just solidify his political base. The only people left would be Curly supporters. So maybe you could argue that right now all California is doing is shedding the people that are, you know, don't appreciate the California way whatever that might be, you know, the people that are more center right or more conservative or something like that. And so getting rid of them will actually just further solidify the democratic base in California. So I, I would I would be hesitant to say that it would be that it's good for California as a whole having fewer people and less dynamism and a you know a slower growing economy, but it certainly might be better for the California's political class. Um, because again, the only people that are going to be left are going to be the people that vote for them. So, yeah, I think this was, uh, the original theory, uh, in East Germany too, although later they realized that, uh, well, <laughs> we don't have enough supporters. So they, they had to stop people from leaving, but, um, yeah, you know, exactly. Uh, one of the things, one of the things real quick, one of the things I would say cities and states should always be mindful of is that population growth is not good. I mean, population decline is not good. Um, you know, you're either growing or you're dying if you're, if you're a state or a city. So if somehow you think that losing people is, is good, I I think you really need to reevaluate that. Yes. And I will say as someone who has both lived, you know, I live in Austin now, growing city, a lot of complaints from people about, uh, traffic, other, other things, real complaints, but I've also lived in a place that people were 
kind of moving away from and and it's be- it is better to be in a place that people want to move to <laughs> than the opposite. Well, uh, let me ask about COVID because you you had said earlier that uh, things were starting to look you know decent for some of these cities before the pandemic, but of course we have had the pandemic. Uh, we also had a big uh, crime spike. We got you know uh, lots of economic mishigas uh, going on. So what uh, what should policymakers be doing or prioritizing now to try and get back to normal? Uh, for business, for other people. I know that you have written uh, some stuff about this. Yeah. So, I mean, in cities in particular, right? And there's some of this, like, we've seen some of the trends of people moving out of the cities. They're not going far. They're typically not necessarily leaving the metro area, but they're moving out to more of the suburban communities. So what are cities going to need to do to bring some of these people back? I think some of it's going to be zoning, changing their zoning rules. They're going to have to be more adaptive. Right now, cities are just so stuck in place. I mean, there's been studies showing, you take a place like New York City, for example, that like, you know, something like half the buildings in Manhattan couldn't be built today, given the current rules around the height, height limits and density restrictions and all this kind of stuff. So cities that want to thrive going forward are going to have to be way more adaptable. They can't be stopping everything from being built, being refurbished. Um, you know, if something's uh, what used to be industrial or, you know, manufacturing and now it no longer makes sense. Say you got some old warehouses, you know, you got to turn those things into mixed use residential um, retail, and you got to do that quickly. Um, cities are just too slow to adapt. They think that, like I said, a lot of people, I think it seems to me that a lot of city officials just think that people will put up with whatever kind of rules they lay in place um, and then are surprised when people no longer want to do it. Um, the tax rates. I mean, again, this is largely applies to places like Manhattan and cities that are allowed to levy their own taxes, income taxes and things like that. But you see New York City and the, the wealthy are leaving New York City because of the uh, taxes not only coming out of a uh, the state, but also the threats from higher taxes just being in the city. So I think at some point cities are going to have to open themselves up to innovators and entrepreneurs, get rid of the red tape, create the one shop, you know, offices where people can go and they want to start a business. Here's the the three steps you need to take and you can do it all right here in a day versus permitting that takes, you know, two, three, four, five months. I mean, Miami's mayor is jumping all over this, right? He's been very active in the news telling all these firms that are leaving California, hey, come down to Miami. Um, we're going to make it easy for you to start your business, easy for you to grow it. Now, again, that's, that, that might just be a lot of talk. I haven't done a lot of research to see whether he's actually making progress on the ground. But, but my understanding is they have done some stuff to streamline the red tape and the regulation to make it easier to open or grow a business in the city of Miami versus other places. And more cities that they want to remain competitive are going to have to do take some of those similar steps. Uh, yeah, so let's talk a little bit about the unemployment benefits aspect of it, because I know you know, uh, around here, it's not uncommon. I mean, it's not super common, but it's not rare to go into a place. And they, I went into a restaurant the other day, and they said, "Oh, sorry, we can't, uh, we can't serve you because we don't have enough people. Places are closed, other things like that." Um, so, what do you think? You know, we did have these kind of souped-up unemployment benefits last year because of the pandemic. Uh, people say that that is affecting the ability of businesses to find enough. Workers, uh, do you think that there is merit to that argument? Absolutely. Um, there's been a couple of recent studies that have come out. I think three that I talk about in my recent my recent Forbes article about this. They're all pointing in the same direction. I mean, it's I think it's too early to get really strong causality. If you were being a really uh, nitpicky empirical economist, you might say, "Oh, this is all just correlation and not really causation." And you know, maybe ten years from now there'll be some natural experiment that someone stumbles upon that they can use. But when you take theory into account, all right, people respond to incentives. And if you pay them 
you know, a significant, significant amount of money not to work, then, you know, then some of them will stay home, right? And I think you are seeing that with these unemployment bonuses. At first, they were $600 top off from the federal government. Then it got lowered to a $300 top off. But that was still enough combined with the state portion of unemployment to make it so that a lot of these lower, uh, a lot of these jobs at the lower end of the income, at the lower end of the pay scale, it made more sense to stay home than, you know, buying gas and driving your car and going to work. So I think you saw a lot of that. And like you, Josiah, I've traveled around now um, since the pandemic, since the vaccine started happening. I mean, I've been in upstate New York. I've been in Nashville. I've been down in Florida. I've been in Texas. So I've been all over the place. And you see this happening everywhere. Um, so with the, with the worker shortage, there's a first or higher signs out in front of every single restaurant. You've noticed that like dining rooms are closed and only drive throughs are open because they can't staff both. Um, it seems like you've got waitresses and waiters who are serving, you know, 10 tables a piece rather than like the typical four or five because they don't have enough servers. So I think it's a real problem and hopefully, um, it gets better over the next couple months now that the unemployment bonuses have expired. So let's let's talk for a minute about the PRO Act, which is a piece of legislation, federal legislation that's modeled on AB5 in California that would uh, put a target on the backs of independent contractors, make it more difficult to operate as an independent contractor um, and, uh, and, and force workers to be treated as employees. Talk a little bit about what the PRO Act would be. And then do you think that's going to impede the economic recovery? Yeah, so the PRO Act, I mean, the biggest part of it, as I understand it, would kind of implement something similar to what AB5 did in California, where it would require most independent workers to be categorized as employees. So rather than being like freelancers or um, being responsible for tracking their own income and paying their own taxes and having some freedom to uh, work at their own at their own uh, leisure, depending on the time of the day or whatever, when they wanted to work, they'd have to be considered employees by the by the firms like Uber. Um, or even like for, even journalists who freelance write for different kinds of publications would have to be an employee of one of them. So I think this has a huge uh, potential impact on the broader national economy for sure. I mean, we saw what happened in California when AB5 was finally implemented. You saw, again, these uh, a lot of journalists could no longer find work because they're getting dumped by the uh, organizations that allowed them to write for them at like a piece rate kind of plan. Um, a lot of uncertainty around it for Uber um, about whether Uber would have to hire these people. Um, I saw you know, saw production companies shutting down, people who put on like plays, you know, local playhouses, and only hire people for you know by the show um, and stuff like that. They no longer could could function. So I think when you think about how large the uh, independent workforce has become and how much people value the flexibility that it provides, something like the national a pro act at the national level would really disrupt. Uh, the economy and the way people and the way people do business. To me, one of the biggest benefits, and you've seen research showing this, one of the biggest benefits about something like Uber or the gig economy more broadly, going like TaskRabbit or whatever, is that it allows you to make money quickly. So if you get laid off from a job, um, a lot of times it takes fi- takes time to find new work. I mean, the hiring process. You, we've all gone through it, right? Multiple interviews, a lot of times. Um, you know, you've got to get the paperwork all situated. You know, usually you don't start even once you get hired. You don't start for another three or four weeks. One thing that's nice about places like Uber is it allows people to smooth that income really quickly. Uh, you know, they can jump on and be an Uber driver, so they can, af- you know, and afford to do that um, and, and afford to live while they're waiting for even a new job to start. People can make money on the side to save up for something else. There's also been research showing that Uber makes it easier for people to go out and start a business because while they're building up their business, 
they can do something like drive for Uber or drive for Lyft in order to tide themselves over while their business is getting up and running. So it actually encourages entrepreneurship. So I think it would be a huge, huge mistake for the country to discourage and potentially even outlaw much of the uh, independent workforce. Let me let me wrap up. You know, so there there are some people out there who like to talk about the the evils of George Soros, and he's got all his like money tentacles everywhere, like secretly funding all sorts of you know nefarious left wing causes, which is absolutely true. And then other people like to talk about the the so called the they make the exact same sorts of points with regard to the Koch brothers, right? Uh, and they're even like the Coctopus is, you know, funding all these sorts of things. And so Doug, I guess, wants me to ask whether there is a secret cabal between the Koch brothers and George Soros to impose a neoliberal order on the world. And you can uh, blink twice if the answer is yes, and you're not able to verbally. Yeah. Okay. All right. I don't know if you have any comments about that. Uh, well, there's certainly a secret cabal that I'm aware of. Uh, so we do actually have one partnership with George Soros on a on a foreign policy group. Um, I'm not super in touch with that part of the with that part of the community, um, but we do have one partnership with him because I think we do share. So Charles and, and George actually share a similar vision for foreign policy, non-interventionist realism and restraint when it comes to foreign policy. So. I think on areas where we get along, where, where, where Charles gets along with George, they, uh, they make investments together and can partner up. And then some areas they disagree. But there is certainly no, no secret cabal that is uh, trying to impose neoliberalism, a very nebulous term in general, uh, yeah. on the country or the world for that matter. Yes, it seems like uh, people don't necessarily even <laughs> – no, no one agrees with what neoliberalism is. It's except that everybody agrees it's bad somehow. I guess. Uh, yeah. Um, a lot of people, yeah, a lot of people agree it's bad. Yeah. Uh, Adam, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for putting up with uh, some of the technical difficulties that we had, and uh, hopefully we can have you back again soon. Yeah, no problem. Thank you very much for having me. It was great. I enjoyed the discussion.